We'll hear argument now in number 97-1192, Swidler in Berlin and James Hamilton versus the United States. Mr. Hamilton. Please, the court. On Sunday, July 11, 1993, at 10 a.m. in the morning, Vince Foster came to my home to consult me as a lawyer in the travel office matter which was then the matter of intense uh, public controversy. We spoke alone for two hours, during which time I took three pages of notes, which are the subject of this litigation here today. Before we began, Mr. Foster asked me if the conversation uh, was privileged, and without hesitation, I said that it was. It is not disputed that my notes would be privileged had Mr. Foster not taken his own life nine days later in Fort Marcy Park, Virginia. Mr. Chief Justice, I wish to make five major points this morning, which I would like to summarize briefly at the outset. First, any balancing test or ruling that leaves the existence of the attorney-client privilege after death in doubt would have a significant chilling effect on client candor, particularly as to those who expect to die soon because people do care about their reputations and the fate of family and friends after death. Secondly, independent counsel's uh, central contention that only the perjurer would be chilled if the privilege does not survive but not the truthful client or the client intending to invoke his Fifth Amendment privilege is contrary to reason and experience and is unsupported by any decision of this court. Third, the conclusion that the privilege should survive in civil cases but not in criminal cases is illogical and unworkable and is supported by no case no statute, or no commentator. Fourth, all the pertinent state statutes recognize, and virtually all the non-testator cases hold, that the privilege survives death. And the testator cases generally recognize that they apply an exception to the general rule that is intended to effectuate the testator's intent. It's an exception that pretty much swallows up the rule, though, isn't it? I mean, well, like 95% of the cases involve the exception to the rule. Uh, Justice Scalia, that is correct, but they apply to a very specific situation when there is a will contest, where there is a question about the uh, testator's intent. It's very specific, but it also happens to be the situation that is most likely to arise with respect to uh, uh, privilege as to a decedent. Justice Souter... Precisely the situation most likely to arise. Uh, Justice Scalia, it is certainly the situation that has arisen most in the past. I would suggest, though, that if uh, the court's opinion below is upheld, the situation will arise uh, much more in the criminal context. How many cases upholding the privilege uphold it, uphold it against... Uh, uh, either uh, a demand by a prosecutor in, the criminal ca in a criminal case or a grand jury request? There are only two cases that I know of. One is the case here. The other is the case in uh, Massachusetts. Uh, the case, case involved uh, John Doe, as it is styled. Counsel, uh, I recognize that the time frame for your briefing was compressed. Uh, but I, th I think there may be a, a, at least a misimpression uh, left by your footnote um, 22 at page 21. And it uh, bears, too, on Judge Tatel's discussion, and it bears, too, on your opening remarks that the states say the privilege does not survive. In California, at least, and that's one of the states you cite in the footnote, the privilege does uh, expire uh, when the estate is closed. And that's been so for 35 years. 
And I, I have not found anything uh, in, in the literature indicating that in California this has caused, uh, number one, any lack, any diminishment in the number of lawyers um, or, or, or in their effectiveness in, in representing their clients. And so I think it's a very important distinction to say that the privilege can be exercised pending the administration of the estate and that it's close. And if, if, if the other states, or some of them, are like California, that, that is, it seems to me, a very significant indication that experience has shown that this is not a problem. Justice Kennedy, I believe that California is the only jurisdiction that has that specific uh, uh, reservation or provision. Have, have the other code. states addressed the problem? Can, can you say that the other states specifically do not? Uh, I've, our study of the state statutes find that they do not. I would also point out that there are a number of states... That they do not address the point. That they, well, that they do not specifically address well, the point. Well, and, and, and if, 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 the, if the administrator of the state is designated as the one to exercise the privilege, uh, then that means the lawyer alone would not be able to exercise it. So it seems to me you can infer that it expires. Justice Kennedy, in a number of states, uh, close to 20 states, the state provisions uh, apply or say that the lawyer also can assert the privilege, not just the personal representative, but the lawyer also. And, of course, that indicates that the uh, survival of the privilege has nothing to do with the uh, winding up of the estate. But, but if, I'm, if I'm correct about California, uh, you would agree that that is relevant in considering whether or not experience shows that this causes a problem. I will agree that uh, it, is a, it is a relevant factor. I should point out that there is a California case, the Pena case that we cite in our brief, where this particular uh, statute was applied in a criminal case not just in a civil case relating to um, the was administration post of the state. Was that the 1965 California Amendment? Do you know? I, I believe it was, but I do, I'll have to check the date of the I'll, I'll case. check that. Well, in, in any event, uh, in, in, in your brief and in a number of the amicus briefs, it, it's stated that uh, uh, what the independent counsel is requesting, requesting here is very uh, is sweeping and, and unprecedented. But we have at least California, we have Pennsylvania, we have the ALI, which speaks for lawyers. Uh, we have all of the commentators except Wigmore, I think. Uh, and we have, as Justice Scalia points out, a privilege that in any event um, is inapplicable when estates and, and property are concerned. It's inapplicable if there's uh, an ongoing scheme that the attorneys consulted uh, for in, in order to continue inapplicable as to fees, inapplicable as to, uh, to, to clients who dispute the, what the attorney told them and that the clients then are in dispute. And also, the privilege uh, that we're talking about here is, is one only as to, uh, as to compelled testimony. The attorney's ethical duty to remain silent continues. And so it seems to me that uh, this is not the sweeping uh, change uh, that, 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 that the amicus briefs uh, and, and, and you indicate? Well, there certainly are some exceptions that you have uh, mentioned. But uh, so far, with the exception of this case and the one case uh, in Pennsylvania, there's been no case that has found that in a non-testamentary situation that the uh, privilege expires when the client uh, dies. And I would suggest as I suggested to Justice Scalia, that uh, if this court upholds the lower court decision, we will have many, many more cases that will raise uh, this particular issue. And well, it I has, it hasn't happened in California for 35 years. Well, if the Supreme Court of the United States announces that the privilege uh, expires upon death, I think that uh, we will find many, many more cases uh, raising this uh, particular issue. Ask if the California statute has been construed by the California Supreme Court. By the California uh, Supreme Court, it was construed by a, a California Court of Appeals in 1984. It was applied in a uh, criminal case. 
to bar the testimony of an attorney. It barred the testimony yes. in the case construing the statute. Yes. But Judge, Judge Williams did say, further, in some states, the privilege does not survive the winding up of an estate inside California for that proposition. I know it isn't part of this record, Mr. Hamilton, but is the Foster estate wound up? The Foster estate is not wound up. But the period of claims is three months? The period for filing claims against the estate is three months in Arkansas? I believe that is correct. Uh, as far as I know, no claims have been filed against the estate, but it's not been finally wound up. But if this were California, you would be able to assert the privilege. Is that right? I mean, assuming that you read the California words personal representative to mean someone who ceases to exist when the estate closes, which I don't know whether that's true or not, but assuming that that is true, because here the estate isn't closed, the estate, it would be proper to assert the privilege, even under California. Well, I, I, the, the question, if the question is whether the attorney is the personal representative, I don't believe the statutes have been interpreted that way. Uh, no, it, it says in California that if there is, if it, you can't claim the privilege if there is no holder of the privilege in existence, and the holder of the privilege is defined as a personal representative of the client. So if you were to construe that as saying the privilege dies when the, after the estate's closed, still you'd be able to assert it here because the estate hasn't closed. Oh, that's correct. Right. Well, Hamilton. unless only the holder can, can assert it. Is it clear under California law that someone other than the holder of the privilege can assert the privilege? Well, under California law, the, the personal representative is the one who can... And no one else. Uh, I don't believe anyone else is so you know that. So you could not assert it under California law, then? The attorney is not, under California law, the attorney is not given the right to assert the privilege. It, I, I'm not, are you sure? I, I have this now in front of me. I'm reading it quickly. But it says, the lawyer who received the, or made the communication subject to the privilege shall claim the privilege. And uh, uh, you know that that's section 955. It seems to give a, I don't know how much you've looked at this. California law. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not certain that the lawyer couldn't assert it. Well, certainly, certainly, Justice Breyer, in, in many states, the lawyer uh, can assert the privilege. Mr. Hamilton, you, you take the position that there can be no compelled testimony by someone in your circumstances, even if the information would be essential to show that a third person was not guilty of a crime, such as in the McComber case in Arizona. You say even in those circumstances, there's no way to get at the information. Is uh, that right? Just, uh, Justice uh, O'Connor, what we said was this, that in a situation where a defendant's rights are at issue, and where denying a defendant access to certain information might unconstitutionally, arbitrarily, and disproportionately uh, infringe upon uh, his or her right to weighty evidence. Perhaps the court in that situation... Well, we don't even know that unless uh, the material can be reviewed, do we? Well, that is correct. That is correct. You don't know that. Oppose reviewing it if a defendant... Uh, in some other case needs the information or if, says he needs it? If there was some uh, demonstration that evidence in the hands of an attorney would be crucial to a defendant's right in this situation, I would not oppose in-camera review. So you make an exception for criminal cases? There, there, I, there, I would make your absolute rule that you can't draw a distinction between civil and criminal? Uh, you're, you're willing to make a distinction between criminal to that extent? Uh, Justice Scalia, in the case of a situation where a defendant's rights may be at issue, okay. uh, then I think that... But that's still a criminal case. That is still, that is still a criminal Let, case. Let's put it in the context, wh why just the defendant's rights? I mean, let's put it in the context of your client, who, who, and, and, and as you know, they're, they're conspiracy theorists who, who, who believe that, uh, that his death was, uh, was, was not a suicide, but, but, but in fact was murder. You, you acknowledge that if his evidence was, was necessary to prove that it was not his wife who committed the murder, uh, that that indeed might be able to come in. But what if his evidence was necessary to prove that somebody else committed the murder? Then you would not let it come in for that purpose. In, in that Even if it was necessary to show who, who, who killed him. In, in that circumstance, I would not. And let me tell the court why. 
It I've, seems to me quite disproportionate. I mean, we, we, the courts like to get to the truth. And, and it seems to me that in that situation, I, I can't see what interest is being preserved. J Justice Scalia, the courts do like to get to the truth. <laughs> but this court has said that a privilege like the attorney-client privilege is of transcendent importance. It is important so clients will go to their lawyers and talk to their lawyers with candor. Uh, that's essential for the lawyer, for the client, but also for the administration of justice. Now, if we have a, a rule that allows the, uh, the privilege to be broken whenever a prosecutor or a grand jury feels that uh, he or it needs the information to pursue who committed a crime, then the privilege will be of little value. Uh, obviously, here we have a, a, a balancing, if you will, of interest. The interest in having lawyers speak to their clients with candor and the interest of getting to the truth. But all of the privileges that we have recognize that to some degree, to some degree, they will inhibit the search for information. Virtually all the other privileges we have have somebody else around who can say, well, in this circumstance, I'm going to let it go. The attorney-client privilege, when the client is still alive, he can say, okay, uh, you know, in the interest of justice, this ought to come out. But what's extraordinary here is you're saying there is nobody, no matter how severe the public interest is on the other side, there is nobody who can say enough is enough. In these circumstances, the information ought to come out. Even if you yourself thought that the information was really crucial, you, you, you would have to say nobody can let it out. It's extraordinary. Justice Scalia, in this particular situation, I do believe the personal ex representative of Mr. Foster's estate could waive the privilege. Is the doctor-patient privilege different in that respect on death? In terms of, in terms of who can uh, waive it? Yes. Um, I would think, uh, uh, Justice Ginsburg, we have not briefed that particular issue, but I would think that in that circumstance also uh, the personal uh, representative of the estate uh, could waive. But you're Is there authority for either of those propositions that the personal representative of the estate could waive either the physician-patient privilege or the uh, lawyer-client privilege? Or is this just kind of speculation on your part? It certainly is authority for the proposition that the personal executive can uh, waive the attorney-client privilege. Um, California, by virtue of statute. And in, in and other, other in other By virtue of statute. And in other jurisdictions, too. By virtue of statute. Yes. Yes. Wouldn't, wouldn't you suppose, though, that the extent of the waiver would be limited by the extent of the personal representative's authority, which I, I guess I have always assumed is essentially authority over property, so that if we're concerned about reputational protection, uh, absent a statute, uh, I would suppose the personal representative could not waive it. Well, the, ca the cases are not very specific on that, but uh, there is at least um, some implication that um, the personal representative could waive in other situations. For example, let me, uh, let me speak about the McCumber case, because I think that is an example of how the courts, even in, in affirming the privilege, have found a way to do uh, justice. In that case, on remand, the personal representative of the deceased estate did waive the privilege, and so the attorney's uh, testimony was available to the court. And it so happened in that situation that the court decided that the testimony was untrustworthy for a number of reasons, and it was not admitted into evidence. But there... But that, that came at the initiative of the attorneys, did it not? I mean, if, if they, had, uh, they, they had this confidence that had been made to them, but the defendant never would have found out about it had it not been for the attorneys for the other client. Well, in that situation, the attorneys did seek um, guidance from the bar to see what they could do. So I think it is fair to say that uh, the attorneys had something to do with... Uh, your, your typical defendant in a criminal case is simply, in, in a lot of... They're simply not going to know of the existence of this evidence So, if, if the privilege obtained. And that, that presumably, is, if the privilege does obtain, that, that's the way it ought to be. Well, they may or they may not. I mean, we don't know what a deceased person has told some third party, so it's, it's hard to speculate as to what someone might uh, know, uh, uh, Mr. Chief Justice.
Mr. Hamilton, you said you had five points and you got out four, so we'd like to hear what the fifth one was. The fifth one was this, uh, Justice uh, Ginsburg. Uh, as to work product, the Court of Appeals notion that even seasoned attorneys do not exercise any professional judgment in taking notes during an initial client interview is contrary to reason and experience, it's without case support, and it is contrary to the facts of this particular case. I would like to go back to my point that uh, persons will not talk with a lawyer uh, with candor if they know that uh, when they die, what they say can be discovered by a prosecutor. Over and over and over again, this court has said that the purpose of the privilege is to encourage clients to talk to their lawyers in a candid fashion. Uh, I, I, I think this is very important, and I, I want to pursue it with you a little. But as you begin, I'm thinking back to the Arizona case, the McCumber case. Uh, you indicate that one of the situations where the confidence might be disclosable is when the client confesses a crime and then someone else is charged with the crime after the, after the death. Um, so that, that, that's, that's the instance where the confidentiality is most important in, in, to, in encouraging the disclosure, and yet we have, you would admit of the possibility in any event that it be discoverable. In the extreme situation, where a defendant's rights would be unconstitutionally, arbitrarily, and disproportionately uh, infringed upon, uh, a court might find an exception. And the paradigm, in, uh, paradigm example of that is when the uh, client confesses the crime to the attorney. That is the paradigm example, but Justice Kennedy, that is not this case. Here we have a prosecutor and a grand jury seeking not specific information about that's exonerating, but seeking all relevant information. Agreed. And not to exonerate anyone, but to see whether uh, prosecution is, uh, is a possibility. As I was saying, the candor rationale has been announced by this court in Upjohn, Jaffe, Fisher, Zolan, Trammell, and other cases. What, what do you, what's the classic instance in which the attorney really should know something in order to help the client, but that the attorney would not hear this? The client would be silent if uh, the independent counsel's position prevailed. Well, what, what's the classic example, do you think? Well, I think... I can't think be the confession of a crime, can't be property. I think you can, you can think of many hypotheticals where uh, a client might be uh, disinclined to uh, reveal something to an attorney if uh, the client knew that after death it might be revealed to the prosecutor. I mean, in this situation, an attorney would have to say, well, uh, I would like for you to tell me the facts, but don't tell me what's really bad, what's really bad, because uh, if you die, I may have to reveal this to a prosecutor. So I think you can come up with many hypotheticals where um, a, a client might uh, not want to reveal some facts to the attorney. Let me just give you a specific one that uh, I used in the Court of Appeals. What if we have a father who is dying and he wants to consult a lawyer about the criminal drug problems of his child? Now, in this circumstance, the dying father will know that as soon as he passes away, some prosecutor might be able to get to the information that uh, he has imparted to his lawyer. And in that circumstance, I think that uh, candor would be, would be chilled because the father is not going to want to say things. That Why does the father have to do that? Can he just say, I want to spend thrift trust for my son, and my son has got some problems? That's all he needs to say. Well, he may not... You're, you're presuming that there's something that's very necessary for the attorney to know that the client won't be able to tell. And I don't see that in that type of thing. Uh, Justice Kennedy, the father may not come to the lawyer about some estate problem, may not come to the lawyer to set up a trust. The father may come to the lawyer to consult about the criminal problems of his son because he is concerned about him and he needs advice 
as to how these matters uh, should be uh, handled. Sir, certainly many lawyers are kind of family confidants as, as well as uh, just advisors on purely legal matters, I suspect. Well, that, is, that of course, is uh, true. The privilege applies when legal advice is sought. But uh, a, a person may, may, might go to a lawyer and with res respect to your, the, the drug, criminal drug pumps of the son, and say, uh, you know, I really don't know what to do about it. He wouldn't necessarily have in mind a particular testamentary disposition. He probably wants the lawyer to tell him what he might do about it. Well, he may seek the lawyer's advice <laughs> about, this, uh, about this criminal issue. That is certainly right. Uh, uh, people who are near death do not always consult uh, lawyers about estate issues. If I consult you about somebody else's criminal problem, is that is that privileged? If, if you if you consult me and you're asking my advice, particularly as to a matter that may affect you in some way, uh, yes, it is. Well, I'm, I'm I'm asking you know, can my son be prosecuted? I mean, there, there's nothing. If, or can my can my brother be prosecuted? If, can my third cousin be prosecuted? Would 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 that be? Uh, what if he's asking, should I make an insurance claim on behalf of the, my son who has this problem? He might, might not necessarily be asking about whether the man committed a crime, but whether it would be wise to make a claim knowing these background facts. There are a lot of different things other than crimes that lawyers consult. Well, that is, that is certainly true. That is certainly true. And if, if I am consulted by a person who wants my legal advice, even though it involves issues concerning other people. That type of conversation, uh, Justice Stevens, is privileged. Now, if the, if the situation is only, uh, uh, will, you, uh, will you help me get a lawyer for my son, uh, that would not necessarily be, I think it, that would not be privileged. But certainly you can consult about the, uh, the legal issues of others. You can consult an attorney, you can ask the attorney to advise you, and that certainly has happened in my own practice. Uh, Mr. Chief Justice, I would like to reserve some time for rebuttal. Very well, Mr. Hamilton. Mr. Kavanaugh, we'll hear from you. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. In light of what Petitioner has stated, let me state at the outset that there can be no mistake about the pernicious consequences of Petitioner's theory taken to its logical extreme. By permanently walling off a critical category of evidence from the criminal process, petitioner's theory will lead to extreme injustice, not our words, the words of Mueller and Kirkpatrick. That will mean that innocent well, people... Who are Mueller and Kirkpatrick? They're two commentators on the law of evidence. Uh -huh. That will mean that innocent... <laughs> <laughs> and not quite as well known as Professor Wigmore, though, I guess. <laughs> that will mean that innocent people will be wrongly convicted and guilty people will be wrongly exonerated, each of which implicates a substantial societal interest. The case of State versus McCumber is exemplary of that point. Mr. Kavanaugh, we've been just told by Mr. Hamilton that he wouldn't take it to that extreme where it was a question of a defendant who was convicted, who was charged with a crime and the information was that some other person had done that, and the lawyer knew that. He did not press his case to that extreme, so I think it would be useful if you curtailed your argument to the one that Mr. Hamilton is making on behalf of the privilege. If that's true, that he's not pressing it to the logical extreme, that undercuts entirely his chilling effect argument, because the person consulting his attorney uh, before death will not have the expectation of confidentiality on which their entire theory is premised. Well, you're only leaving out the case where he's uh, confessing to a crime, and there are a lot of consultations between lawyers and clients where the client does not confess to a crime. That's right, Justice Stevens, but the most likely issue about which a, a client might consult an attorney and which the uh, communications might be sought after death are testamentary cases. And in that circumstance, the law has long established over a century in this court that the privilege does not survive death, notwithstanding, notwithstanding the embarrassment and the harm to reputation that can ensue from disclosure. Yeah, but the assumption... No, please. Why do, you, why do you accept the qualification that your argument only goes to when there's an admission to a crime? 
wouldn't, wouldn't your argument also go to the situation where there's an admission that somebody else did the crime? Well, that son did the crime. My third cousin did the crime. Wouldn't that also uh, open up, uh, if you accept the qualification, uh, the, the consultation to intrusion? Yes. Well, yes. my point is a lot of consultations where nobody committed a crime. That's because right. You can't assume all conversations between client and lawyer involve criminal behavior. Generally, we presume people are innocent unless somebody proves otherwise. But the most likely consultation, again, will be in the testamentary context, and there the law has long established that the privilege... How do we know that's the most likely uh, consultation between lawyer and client? Clients talk to lawyers about a host of problems, not just testamentary dispositions. The most likely situation in which the communications would be sought after death, experience tells us, are testamentary cases. In fact, it is... Uh, and maybe often. one reason for that is it has generally been assumed, as the literature is unanimous on it, that these conversations are privileged. We don't that know. That is the background assumption, and the cases you describe all say they are exceptions from the general rule. Exceptions from the general rule of attorney-client privilege. It's not exceptions from a general rule about what happens to the privilege after death. The most uh, prevalent rule after death the only thing we know that is settled with respect to posthumous privilege is that the privilege does not apply in the vast majority of cases in which it's raised, namely testamentary cases. No, but does that prove very much for your side? Because the theory of the testamentary exception is that the client would, in fact, want the lawyer to talk for the purpose of, of implementing whatever the client's intent was. Uh, the assumption seems to be that there's a point to which the client wants to go. That was the object of the, the will of the trust or whatnot. Uh, and, and so, in fact, the, 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 the theory behind that exception is really that the, that the client authorizes it. You're arguing uh, for the converse case in which we assume the client would not. So what does that prove? Two points in response, Justice Souter. First, as Judge Williams and Judge Wald stated in the Court of Appeals opinion, that rationale for the testamentary exception simply does not work. We don't know whether in intending for a particular property distribution, the testator intended that his or her attorney-client communications also be disclosed to fulfill that uh, property intent. Uh, so well, we may not in the sense that uh, in, in this case there is, in fact, a, a, a statement that can be uh, attributed to the client saying, I want you to do this, I want you to talk, or I don't want you to talk. Uh, but it seems to me there is a reasonable argument uh, that the, the client wants the object of, of, of his testamentary intent to be served. And if in order to serve it, it is necessarily necessary to disclose something, it's reasonable to suppose the client would want the disclosure. I, I, I think that's as far as the, as the theory goes. Well, it, it may be reasonable to suppose, but most uh, believe that that's the one situation above all others where clients would be chilled to non-disclosure by the possibility of, of uh, posthumous disclosure of the attorney-client communications. And if we're going to presume intent in that context, why do we not also presume intent in this context? Presume that a person near death would want to fulfill what this court has called his basic obligation as a citizen to provide information to the grand jury. And even on the facts of this case... Because there are a great many people who know they have that obligation, or at least that there is a general theory that they have that obligation, but they do not, in fact, want to fulfill it. Uh, I mean, we're, we're being realistic, I think. Well, it's, again, what we should presume someone's intent to be. And if we pre presume it in the testamentary context, even though it's going to be embarrassing information about one's family members, it could cause great harm directly. Well, if I may interrupt you, I think it's the difference between a presumption of fact and a presumption of law. I mean, in, in the testamentary case, we figure, in fact, the fellow wants to accomplish something. If we're going to presume it in this case, I think it probably would have to be a, a presumption of law, uh, quite divorced from any, any specific uh, actual intent on the part of the client, because we know that if, if embarrassment would in fact uh, result to the client's reputation, to, to living individuals, probably the client would not want that disclosed. Well, again, I guess we just have a disagreement about what people would uh, want done in the testamentary context as well. Uh, may, may I ask you a different question, uh, which, which hasn't specifically come up, I, I think? 
Who has the burden of persuasion here? Do you have it? Uh, this court has stated repeatedly that privileges obstruct the search for truth and thus must be strictly construed. So to the extent there's a burden with respect to a legal issue, uh, we would suppose that the burden would be on petitioners to establish uh, what they want here. What, what if, we, if we assume, and I realize that you dispute this, but if we assume that in fact uh, the, uh, the understanding of the profession has been, at least for a very long time, that there is a privilege as broad as Mr. Hamilton argues for, uh, so that, the, so that we, we start with a privilege which has been established, then I suppose the burden would be upon you, uh, uh, in, in effect, to, to um, uh, justify a curtailment. Well, in the, the testamentary exception did not exist forever either. That was an exception that was developed over time, and this court recognized it in Glover versus Patton. With respect to exceptions to an absolute privilege, uh, we still think when the societal interests are balanced, the burden is on the privileged proponent to establish that the need for confidentiality outweighs uh, the Mr. need for relevant Mr. information. Mr. Kavanaugh, uh, you're, you're confining your uh, uh, argument to, the, to a criminal case? That's correct, Mr. Now, Chief Justice. when you say a criminal case, do you mean uh, a case where the, the, the statement made by the client to the attorney uh, it, it has perhaps some, some earmarks of a declaration against penal interest, or is it just any statement made by the client to his attorney which might be admissible or useful to a criminal investigation? It's the latter, Mr. Chief Justice. But in that, in that context, your, your brief, I think about page 8, indicates, well, uh, there's, there's no danger to the client of criminal liability once... once um, uh, after his death, uh, but there is substantial danger of civil liability if X confesses to the attorney that he's engaged in a, 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 a pattern of, of fraud that's criminal, and that comes out. That would subject uh, his estate to a civil liability by the injured persons. The rule we seek in this case leaves open one of two possibilities in a civil case in which the estate is a party. Either in that future case, the court or the federal courts could end the privilege at death, or they could end it when the estate is wound up. In your earlier questions, Justice Kennedy, about the estate being wound up, that uh, rule shows that the rationale behind winding it up when the estate, uh, ending the privilege when the estate winds up, means that interests in reputation and interests in protecting others are not what justifies the privilege after death. It is simply to protect the financial interests of the estate. And thus those codes, which um, have been in the proposed federal rule, in the model code of evidence, the rationale for those codes, limitation and duration and scope, support our position when their rationale is translated to criminal. But I, I, I think that perhaps understates the one reason which I think is generally agreed to, that the, the client must feel free to tell the lawyer the, you know, the truth, the whole truth, etc., so that the lawyer will be able to give him uh, good legal advice. And uh, the, it, it seems to me when you, when you narrow the rationale the way you do, perhaps you, you overlook some of that. Well, we think the attorney-client privilege, as it is developed over time, represents not a single policy. It, uh, petitioners cherry-pick out the one policy of encouraging client candor, but it represents a balancing, a mix of considerations and policies that have led to different rules in different contexts, such as the crime-fraud exception, such as the exception for testamentary uh, cases. Well, in the case of the drug uh, user son, that, uh, the hypothetical we were discussing, it, it seems to me there is some merit to that argument. Attorneys, uh, uh, especially in, in, this, in practices where they advise families, uh, often have this kind of question, what shall I do with X in my family who's an alcoholic or a, a drug user? Attorneys engage in not just retrospective uh, uh, an analysis of what happened, they, they try to give guidance for the future, and it seems to me that the profession might be a, a little poorer for the, for the uh, restriction you ask us to adopt. 
the American Law Institute, which does represent the interests of judges and lawyers, and has been followed by this court in many different bodies of law, has concluded in agreement with our position that the privilege uh, should end after death. In the hypothetical... Well, Mr. Kavanaugh, that position is not really supported by much, if any, case law that I can find. I mean, that's a position they take in the explanation, but it does not appear to have a lot of support. The and uh, I, while I have you interrupted, how do you characterize the holding of the majority of the panel below that we're reviewing? They seem to adopt some sort of balancing test as applied to a specific case to see whether testimony should be, whether the privilege should be breached and the testimony compelled. The Is that how you understand the holding? Uh, the Court of Appeals did uh, require that the information be, quote, of relative importance, a standard that they said was plainly met in this case. But we it seemed to be some kind of a balancing test applied case by case. Do you support that approach? Is that the rule you suggest that we should apply? We support that approach, but we also pointed out in our brief that it may be somewhat inconsistent with what this court has done in cases such as Brandsburg, where it is said... Yeah, I think it is. This court has rejected a sort of balancing approach. In, in many cases it has, and that's why we pointed out uh, in our brief that in cases such as Brandsburg and University of Pennsylvania, uh, within the context of grand jury proceedings, the need has already been established. There's no uh, necessity for a further balancing once you're within that narrow limited context. Well, it sounds like you're not arguing for affirmance of the test articulated by the panel below, but you didn't cross-petition. Uh, we're arguing for affirmance of the judgment, and we're, we pointed out an alternative legal standard in support of the judgment below. We are not seeking to enlarge the judgment in any way, Justice O'Connor. What was the judgment below? Was it that the district court consider the matter and, and come to a... Uh, a determination, or was it that the uh, that the material had to be provided? Uh, it reversed and remanded without specific directions as to what was going to happen on remand. Presumably, we don't know whether all the notes even concern the travel office matter, since we haven't seen the notes, and there may be parts of it that aren't even relevant to our investigation. Well, did it tell the district court to apply the weighing test that that that, that it has enunciated? It simply said reversed and remanded for further proceedings consistent with this opinion. Well, no. wouldn't one think that further proceedings consistent with this opinion would be to apply the weighing test that the court announced? Uh, we don't think so because the court said the standard was plainly met here and it was talking wait, about... Wait, wait, can you point out the portion of the opinion? Because that's blurry in my mind. I don't remember the Court of Appeals having resolved the issue for the district court. On page 11A of the petition appendix, where the proponent has offered facts supporting where, where, a good Whereabouts on page 11A are you? Uh, the beginning of the first full paragraph, where the proponent has offered facts supporting a good faith, reasonable belief that the materials may qualify for the exception, a standard plainly met here by the independent counsel. And the preceding paragraph... But what does it say after that? It says the district court should, in its sound discretion, examine the communications to see whether they, in fact, do. That's hardly instructing the district court, go ahead and order the disclosure of this material. It says examine the communications. Well, we think the communications have to be examined to determine whether they're relevant uh, to a, what our investigation. There may be portions of the notes, again, that have nothing to do with the travel office and may be extraneous materials, and that's why the district court in the first instance has to look at it. And the then the court goes on to say, to the extent that the court finds an interest in confidentiality, the district court, it can take steps to limit access, etc. So it's hardly an instruction to the district court to go ahead and order the divulgence of these notes. May I ask you a question in that line? Could you, if Foster were alive, say, subpoena him as a witness before the grand jury and say, tell us what you told your lawyer? No, we could say, tell us everything you know about the travel office matter, which is the same information that he told, presumably told Mr. Hamilton. All we seek in this case, the grand jury seeks no windfall. It seeks to be the same information to which it would have been entitled 
where Mr. Foster... But you would not have been entitled to these notes if the client were alive. So it's his death that establishes your qualification for something you could not have gotten. I thought your main argument was this is a backup for the client. We could have had the client were he only alive. But now what you're really urging is something you never could have gotten when the client was alive. You could have gotten the client's testimony. Do you think that you could, you could ask the, the, the lawyer, tell us what Foster told you instead of looking for his notes? If, if he were alive? No. In the current Foster, situation? Yes. You're saying yes. you have a right to his notes. Do you also have a right to the lawyer's testimony? Absolutely, Justice Ginsburg. And is it up to you interchangeably, or do you have to do one before the other? The orderly process of a grand jury usually seeks someone's documents and then question them about those documents. But even on the work product side of it, if you have access to the lawyer's testimony, why do you need the notes? Because the notes... Uh, may help to show what was discussed in the conversations between Mr. Foster and Mr. Hamilton and refresh Mr. Hamilton's recollection. Well, he can use them to refresh his recollection, but I thought, now turning to the work product side of it, that a statement that's not the witness's verbatim statement, that is the most closely guarded kind of work product, a lawyer's notes, as distinguished from his verbatim transcript of the witness's testimony. The settled case law in the lower courts, Justice Ginsburg, is in situations where the witness who communicated with the lawyer is unavailable, then those portions of the notes that at least reflect the factual statements of the witness and surrounding information uh, must be disclosed, even uh, when the client uh, or the witness is still alive. But, but uh, you have to make a substantial showing under the rule, don't you? And for those, perhaps under Upjohn, you have to make an even more of a showing. What showing did you make in this case as to the work product? No, the, the showing that has to be made, Mr. Chief Justice, is the showing that the witness in question is no longer available for questioning, as the Second and Third Circuits uh, stated. And that is what the showing is, and that's been a traditional showing in the lower courts uh, and is approved in the restatement that suggests uh, the notes must be produced in that circumstance. That that, is, that itself is a substantial showing that the witness is no longer available? That's, uh, that's correct, Mr. Chief Justice, and those opinions have, uh, in the restatement, follow what Upjohn stated uh, on that point. In Upjohn, of course, and this goes to the attorney-client privilege point that Justice Ginsburg raised, a fundamental pillar on which the attorney-client privilege rests, a, a pillar that this Court emphasized in Upjohn, is that the client can be questioned directly about the underlying events. And that's simply not true after death, and that's what fundamentally alters the privilege analysis in this case. The client you can't question a person after his death. Sorry, you can't question the person before his death about a matter that's privileged, can you? No, but the same how do you, how do you know? How do you know that he didn't talk to the lawyer about privileged matters, matters that were subject of some other privilege? How do you know that? You haven't seen the notes. We, we don't know what's in the notes. All right, so is, is it your rule that what's supposed to happen is that after a person dies, uh, the judge is supposed to go through uh, uh, the notes that his lawyer has to see if they're subject to some other privilege or not, and some materials would survive the death and others wouldn't survive the death? Is that basically it? I mean, well, some, some, some conversations with lawyers would survive death as privileged. Ordinarily, not. Ordinarily, when you disclose information to your attorney, if the attorney-client privilege doesn't apply, for example, in a crime-fraud situation, you, uh, you couldn't come in and say, oh, some other privilege applies. Why not? You might have told the attorney what you told your wife, or what your wife told you, or what you told your psychiatrist, or what the psychiatrist told you, or any other dozens of privileges that could apply. So if you're saying, I guess, that those still would apply, even though they'd normally be waived when you talk to somebody about them, uh, you're asking the judge to start picking and choosing among a, is there any common law support or did you find in the last 30 years even in california any instance i guess you did a handful six or something but i mean you look at hundreds of cases did you find instances where either in civil or criminal proceedings in california or anywhere else uh, somebody did uh, breach this privilege other than the testamentary context well, the case in Pennsylvania... I'm not saying necessarily cases. I mean, is it the practice in California that prosecutors or civil litigants uh, uh, routinely uh, obtain material on discovery from a lawyer of a person who's died 
after the closing of the estate? Well, again, there is a distinction between civil cases in which the estate is a party and, and other civil cases. Your, your question goes to the unusual nature of the facts presented in this proceeding and in cases such as the Charles Stewart case or the McCumber case. These no, I'm asking you basically, you, you've done a lot of excellent research, and I'm saying in the course of that research, either through conversations or otherwise, have you found it to be a practice in California, which has had this evidence code for 30 years? Have you found that it is the practice? Have you found an instance either in cases or outside of cases, where lawyers, routinely or otherwise, in civil or criminal proceedings, other than the testamentary context, breach the lawyer-client privilege? The, the, we're simply silent on that point, Justice Breyer. We have not found instances. A lot of this will come up, of course, in, in the criminal context, in the context of secret grand jury proceedings. And not, it perhaps shows that the criminal prosecutions are very responsible that criminal prosecutors are very responsible and don't abuse the privilege that California apparently gives them. Well, I think it might show that the kind of situation uh, that's true and also shows that the kind of situation we have here, as the facts and the statement yeah. of facts indicate, are rarely going to arise. In another, another thing it shows is the woeful dearth of any empirical research in the legal profession because the kind of questions that Justice Breyer, some of the rest of us ask, you know, if lawyers were polled as to how, how they treated client confidences and people asked prosecutors, we would have a much better idea of how to, dis to decide this case than, you know, A.B. writes a law review article and says, here's what I think. I, I couldn't agree more, Mr. Chief Justice. And the empirical question, even as to the attorney-client privilege for living clients, outside the context where the client asserts the Fifth Amendment, there is very little empirical support behind... Well, of course, this is against the background in which the attorney has the, the unceasing ethical obligation not to dis discuss uh, the, the confidential communication. We're talking only about compelled testimony. That's exactly right, and that's important. But even there, I'm, I'm a little concerned. Uh, suppose that... Um, there's a, a, a multi-defendant crime, and there are five lawyers representing five different uh, defendants. Uh, defendant number one dies. Uh, under your view, I guess the prosecution could um, uh, compel the uh, attorney for the now deceased defendant uh, to uh, disclose all of the uh, information, which it seems to me uh, might might among other things, put the attorney for the deceased clients in great danger. Well, that, that's right. And actually, Justice Kennedy, your, uh, your question is a problem uh, in the law, notwithstanding dying clients. Why is it a problem? I mean, death has sort of given the uh, one of the five defendants uh, absolute immunity, well, that was which the state could have given anyway, right? That's it absolutely right. given in a more extreme fashion, so to speak. That's right, Justice Scalia, and in fact, what I was going to say is well, the law has a... But, Mr. Kavanaugh, in that case, it's, it's the defendant who would have the, the worry, not the defendant's lawyer. Well, uh, the law has experience with the situation Justice Kennedy raises, not with someone dying, but someone pleading or uh, being granted immunity, and there are... Right, and he may have to worry about it, but his lawyer doesn't have to worry about it. Well, I think Justice Kennedy was positing a situation of an organized crime type of case where the lawyer would be in danger if the client... Uh, because the lawyer is well, the I, I am. the information. What, I, I am. What, what's the answer to that? Well, the answer in that case is that the attorney uh, must disclose the communications, and there can be conflict problems if it was a joint defense arrangement whereby everyone was meeting in the same room. Mr. Kavanaugh, you say that the, uh, the attorney must disclose the communications. This goes to your basic theory. I'd just like to know, are you urging us to, find, to, to, to decide what the law now is, or are you asking us to change the law? We think the law is, in federal courts, there is no law. And so I guess it's both. Uh, we, we don't, we don't know both whether... say what the law now is and change it. We, we, don't, <laughs> we, we, we don't know what the law... We don't, we don't know what the law is. Uh, you're not urging that the law be what the D.C. Circuit... As I understand your position, you say, we think that death ends it, period. The D.C. Circuit said there's some kind of balancing. Do I understand you correctly to say we think 
the D.C. Circuit was wrong, but we'll take that as second best, so that your position is death ends the privilege. We don't think the D.C. Circuit was wrong. We do think the D.C. Circuit's articulation of the phrase relative importance has some inconsistency with what this Court has stated in cases such as Brandsburg. Well, what is your first position, then? Is your first position is death ends it, or is it... That that is our first position. Our second position, um, alternative positions, is that relative importance is a standard that uh, we would be happy with. But again, we... And is that the ALI standard? I think earlier you said the ALI agrees with you. I thought the ALI position was some kind of balance. It's it's some kind of uh, vague balancing. As to Pennsylvania... Your your, your position is that it ends for both civil and criminal. No, only for criminal? Correct. All right, if it's only for criminal, then who, which group of... States, I guess the answer is none, but which group of commentators or law reformers or whatever have advocated uh, that the rule apply, uh, terminate only in criminal but not civil cases? Well, with hesitation at raising their names again, Mueller and Kirkpatrick do suggest that. <laughs> the, ALI, the ALI does not. Yes. Right. Uh, I w- that's correct. I want to make one point about yes. Pennsylvania. For 22 years, Justice Kennedy, there's been experience in Pennsylvania after Cohen versus Jenkintown cab. It's a big state with a lot of lawyers, and there's no evidence, even with petitioners and their amici and their vast resources, of any chilling going on in the uh, Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, uh, based on the experience. You have the uh, What I'm quite curious about is, of course, the California Code, and maybe Pennsylvania, I don't know, are maybe a little ambiguous as to whether it ends at death, as I read it through here. So an explanation to the dearth of cases may be that all clients basically think they're privileged, lawyers think they're privileged, everybody thinks they're privileged, so they don't try to get it. Now, is there any reason you have for thinking what I just said is wrong? I I don't think many people have thought about this issue, Justice Breyer. It comes up so rarely, and that would be my... Well, is the reason that it comes up rarely? Because California lawyers, throughout the country lawyers, clients throughout the country, go into a lawyer and they think, I'm safe. They all think that's the rule, so they don't try to get it. Is that the reason why there is a dearth? Uh, The reason that there is a a dearth is the the factual situation rarely comes up, we think, and and clients know when they talk to their lawyers, I'm going to have to disclose these facts when I'm called to testify anyway. Uh, So that kind of chilling is far greater than anything we propose here. Thank Thank you, Mr. Kavanaugh. Uh, Mr. Hamilton, you have two minutes remaining. Uh, Mr. Chief Justice, I want to uh, come back to the work product issue because I believe Mr. Kavanaugh has uh, misstated the law in that, circum- in that uh, area. Uh, I believe that the Upjohn case, the Hickman case, demonstrate that the type of notes that I took are protected by the work product. Uh, Upjohn says that... Uh, that notes that embody what the lawyer saw fit to write down enjoy special protection, not an ordinary protection, but special protection. This is found at 449 U.S. at 399. Don't these cases usually come up in the context where somebody would want to use, where, where, where insight into the lawyer's thinking would be useful in litigation against the lawyer's client? I mean, is it... What is the purpose of the work product privilege? Is it some some copyright uh, benefit that the lawyer has in the particular unusual way that his lawyer's mind works, even even in future cases that have nothing to do with this client or with this litigation? The work product privilege is intended to protect the adversary system. It is intended to let lawyers work in a certain sphere without interference. Sure, so that your opponent can't, can't see behind your thinking, your strategizing in this particular case. That's but when the case is all gone, when there's no case left at all, is there something sacrosanct about the way this lawyer's mind was working well, in a long-gone case that, that has no future implications? I think, I think uh, this, this court in the Golio case has said that the work product privilege uh, extends even after the litigation involved has concluded. But the purpose is to protect the lawyer's thought processes, his methods of working. This protection... So it is sort of a copyright. It's, it's an intellectual property thing, right? I have, not, I have not read any opinion, Justice Scalia, that describes it that way. But 
there are opinions, including the Moody case that uh, Mr. Kavanaugh cites, that say that the work product privilege belongs to the lawyer as well as to the client because the cases recognize that the lawyer has an interest to protect. And the lawyer can assert that work product privilege uh, even though the client does not. What is that interest that he has to protect? It is and there's n this litigation is all gone. It's not usable in any other litigation. What is the interest that, that the lawyer has to protect? It is protecting his thought processes, his methods of operation. It allows him to prepare his cases in a certain amount of privacy, knowing that his adversaries will not have access to his work product. Thank you, Mr. Hamilton. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until Monday next at 10 o'clock.